Romans 15, beginning in verse 22, this is Paul's um, uh, farewell wishes to the church in Rome. And he says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I have come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, there's something that you may not know about me and something that I probably didn't know about myself prior to planning this church, and that is that I cannot stand writing support letters. There is something in me as I came to plant this church that revolted against the idea of writing support letters, of fundraising. Maybe in part it's because so many churches have abused financial matters and they have, they have um, exploited the people of God and they have exploited people that are not the people of God to give money, to build up their own ministries. And yet it's something that's necessary. Raising support is necessary. Writing support letters is necessary, and yet it's something that I, to this day, have not come to enjoy or to embrace doing. And what's interesting, and what you may not know, is that the Apostle Paul had to write support letters. The Apostle Paul was not a church planner planning one church in one particular place and staying there. He was the great apostle who went all over the known world at that time, traveling thousands and thousands of miles by foot and planting churches. And what you may not know and what may not be evident at first glance as we look at this book is that the letter to the Romans, the greatest letter ever written, arguably the greatest letter in the New Testament, the greatest summary of Christian doctrine ever written by anyone inspired by God in the scriptures was basically a support letter for the Apostle Paul. And as I meditated on that, and as we come to the end and we now see Paul's true intentions, why was Paul writing a church that he had never met? Why was he writing so much to a people that he had never been around? And we learn very quickly that Paul is seeking their fellowship and their support so that Paul can finish his ministry as the great apostle to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting that as I thought about this and I thought about my own need to raise support in the early days of this church plant, I wondered how people would have responded if I wrote them a support letter full of theological truths like you find in the book of Romans. They would probably say, hey, we trust you're doing a good work. 
you don't need to write us any more support letters. But Paul felt it necessary to lay this foundation. And notice that what Paul does, and maybe as you've read this, you've wondered when Paul speaks about my gospel, he will speak about my gospel to them as if you might think, well, were there other gospels? Were, was, did Paul have a gospel that was different from Peter? And yet, what Paul is doing is he's encouraging this congregation to get behind his ministry and to understand that he had been appointed to be the great church planning apostle throughout the Gentile world. This morning we're going to see two things. First, we're going to consider Paul's journeying for the spread of the gospel. And secondly, we're going to consider Paul's joy in the fellowship of the gospel. We'll notice that Paul actually mentions three places in this section. He's already told them about his ministry, that he had a mission to the church, which we saw last week, and that he had a mission to the world, that God had called him to both serve the church with the gospel and to serve the world with the gospel. And now Paul mentions, as I noted last week, he had a bucket list, and Paul mentions three places that he wanted to go before he died. And those three places were Rome, Jerusalem, and Spain. Now, you may think, well, isn't that nice? Paul wanted to go to Spain. I'd love to go to Spain. You probably wouldn't have wanted to go to Spain 2,000 years ago and bring a gospel that they had never heard and call men to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus. And yet Paul was driven. Notice verse 20, Paul said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul has in sight the ends of the earth. And in a very real sense, and this is remarkable, in a very real sense, the Apostle Paul is the apostle that gets to see the great commission fulfilled in the first century. And that's interesting because the Apostle Paul is the only one of the apostles that wasn't with Jesus after his resurrection when he gave the great commission, when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. And here the Apostle Paul is standing on the precipice of the fulfillment of what Jesus promised to do. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the Great Commission... Um, Jesus couches the commission to go for his ministers to go into all the earth in his omnipotence, that he has all power, all authority has been given to me, and his omnipresence, lo, I'm with you always. It's Jesus who was fulfilling this ministry. Paul has already noted that. Notice verse 18 where he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul knew that it was Christ who was fulfilling the Great Commission. Paul knew that the, the, the all-powerful Christ, the one who had been given all authority, Jesus had been invested as the God-man with all authority to give eternal life to whoever the Father gave him. And he had commissioned ministers to go out and apostles to go out and preach the gospel. And, and he had said, I am with you. And Paul is realizing that. And as he writes this support letter to the church in Rome, he's saying, I want to go to the furthest place that I can think of to see that fulfilled, and that is Spain. Paul was interested in Hispanic ministry. That is awesome. In the first century, Paul wanted the gospel to go to the furthest possible 
location. Now, Paul did several things also as he, as you start to unpack and wonder why does Paul want to go to Rome and to Jerusalem and to Spain. I think the apostle was very strategic. He wanted to go to the, the centers, the metropolises. He wanted to go where the majority of the people in the known world were gathered, and he wanted to see churches planted, and then he wanted to see those churches plant other churches. Now, notice what Paul actually says in verse 23, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and you're kind of like, what? No, no more room for work in these regions? As if Paul could ever run out of work, as if he could ever stop planting churches, and yet Paul realizes that, that all those churches he had planted just north of Rome, that they were now self-sufficient churches, and that their goal was to have pastors and to be planting other churches and to be calling other men, and so Paul wanted to go where Christ had not been named. But, and here's the really interesting thing, if any of you are one of those odd people that like to get maps out and look at locations, you don't go from Rome to Spain, to Jerusalem, to get to Spain. You don't go from Rome, southeast to Jerusalem, to go west of Rome to Spain. But that's exactly what Paul says he wants to do. Notice that Paul tells them in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul has longed to come to the church in Rome. He has longed to meet people he has heard about. He, he longs to be with them. And he longs, and we'll see this in just a moment, he longs to have fellowship with them. He longs to be refreshed by them. And yet Paul is asking them to be a supporting church. Paul is essentially going to Rome in order to go to Jerusalem, in order to go to Spain, because Paul needs the church to help support him. Now this is an enormous principle. You know, we look at Romans and we think, well, can't we just wrap it up? And the more I meditate on the end of Romans, the more I realize how much is there. Here is, here is the greatest evangelist, pastor, church planner, missionary the world has ever seen. And he is coming to a church and he is saying, I need your help. We tend to think, don't we, that when somebody's gifted and able and zealous, they need the least help. We tend to think that those are the sh who are the strongest, who are the most zealous, who have the most vision and ambition, need the least help. And Paul is essentially saying to them, and he's coming in great humility, he's coming and he's saying, and I think his humility validates his ministry, notice he is saying to them, essentially, I need your help. I need your help in prayers. Notice verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul is telling them that he cannot accomplish his mission without the prayers of the people of God. There's something remarkable about the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who went from unbelievably self-motivated, selfish ambition to unbelievably Christ-motivated after his conversion, and yet he realizes that in and of himself he does not have what it takes to accomplish what he wants to see accomplished because Christ wants it accomplished. I think that Paul intimates in verse 22 when he says to the church in Rona, I've been hindered from coming to you, I think he's talking about a divine purpose, a divine hindering. God 
had not opened the door for Paul to come. There's something magnificent about God's sovereignty and human responsibility in this passage. Paul is zealous. Paul wants to take the gospel out, wants to go to Rome, Jerusalem, Spain, but realizes God has to open the door, realizes that God puts desires in the hearts of the people to pray for him, and that God will in turn answer those prayers. Now, this is that great mystery, isn't it? If God's sovereign, if he's in control of everything, if he doesn't add anything to us, and we don't add any, or if we don't add anything to him, he adds everything to us. If, if we are merely creatures and we are finite in every way possible and he is infinite and he is sovereign and our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he desires, why, why, why do the people of God have to pray so that God will accomplish his purposes through someone like Paul? Well, because that's how God structured things. God often, and I love the way that John Piper puts this, he often engages our wills by dropping truth into our minds. God often engages our wills by dropping truth into our minds. So what God is doing in verse 30 is he is dropping the truth that the people of God need to be praying for the minister, for Paul, so that the purposes of God will be accomplished in him. And notice what Paul says. He says confidently in verse 31 that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, what does Paul mean about his service being acceptable to the saints? Well, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's taking a large bag of money from one church to another church. He's taking money from the Macedonians. You'll read about this in, the, in his letter to the Philippians where they, who themselves had financial struggles, nevertheless gave beyond what they were able for the ministering to the needs of the saints. There was one church in the first century that was persecuted more than all other churches, and that was the church in Jerusalem. That was the church where our Lord Jesus was crucified. It was the church in the very place where the covenant people should have embraced the gospel because God had given them all the promises and all of the nurture for so many thousands of years, and yet that was the place where the most enmity and the most hostility and the most severe persecution was felt. Possessions were taken away, and it was a church that had been stripped of its resources. And it's interesting to me in a day when as you read leadership magazines for pastors, that it is, if you're strong enough, if you make the right decisions, if you do this, if you do that, it's a slot machine mentality, that Paul doesn't have that. Paul realizes that here is a church of believers in Jerusalem, the very place where he was from and where he wanted to be, who were suffering, whose goods had been taken away, and Paul, and listen very carefully, the great proclaimer of the gospel. When we think of Paul, we think Paul preaches. He preaches. Paul is preaching about Jesus. Paul doesn't get bogged down with, with menial things. Paul doesn't get sidetracked. And yet here is the great apostle Paul, and he is taking money from a Gentile church to the church in Jerusalem to serve the needs of the saints, to minister to those in need. And he wants the, the, the church in Rome to get behind him 
to support him, to send him, and to pray for him to accomplish that very important task. Now, there's a couple things we take away from this. One is that mercy ministry is unbelievably important in the Bible. It is not the gospel. We make that clear at New Covenant that if you replace what Jesus did with what you do, that's another gospel. And yet, we never want to diminish the fact that mercy ministry from church to church, especially within the household of faith, is one of the foremost desires of the Lord Jesus and one of the foremost desires of the Apostle Paul. And notice what Paul says. Notice in verse 25, at present I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. And notice what Paul says again in verse 32. I'm sorry, in verse 31, he asks for prayer that he may take an acceptable service to the saints in Jerusalem. I think that there is something that churches that are very word-centered like ours need to really give ourselves to, and that is a prayerful consideration of the needs of others and how we meet those needs. We never, ever, ever want to dismiss the need to be merciful unto others and to care for the needs of others because we are afraid that we're going to jeopardize the gospel. That is, in fact, a denial of the implications of the gospel. It actually denies the implications of the gospel if we say we don't care about the needs of other churches that are struggling and other believers that are struggling. And yet there's something so free about Paul's mission. There's something so, there's something so spontaneous about Paul's desire to take money from one church to another. And, and Paul sees in that, notice that in his journeying, he sees actually an obligation. Notice Verse 27, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul understood that everything that we've received, we're all Gentiles here, I'm pretty sure, everything we've received in the gospel was first by divine right, covenantally owed to Israel, not to us. God had set apart that nation he formed out of Abraham. We sang this morning. I know it's a hard song to sing, but the God of Abraham prays. Abraham's God and mine. We have been grafted in. And that means that we are debtors because we didn't deserve the privileges. We didn't have any covenantal right to them. We didn't have any right to say, this is our God, and this is our Redeemer, and these are our promises. We were far off. And so Paul sees in the collection that he's taking from the Macedonians to, um, to Israel that he sees in there an obligation to care for them because they have given the, the greater spiritual blessings of the Lord Jesus. Can they not give the lesser blessings of material provisions? Secondly, and I want us to consider this most seriously this morning, Paul is not simply telling them about his journey and his desire to see uh, mercy ministry to Jerusalem and the gospel go to Spain. Paul is telling them about the joy that he has with the Roman church in the fellowship of the gospel. And notice what he says. Notice verse 24. 
Notice that Paul, as he tells this church he wants to come for just a short time, says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Notice verse 30. I'm sorry. Um, Notice verse 32. Paul says that he wants to come to the Romans so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, this is striking. Paul has just set out this massively important theological pastoral letter, and he's told them all about the things of Christ and salvation. And you get the feel sometimes when you read Paul that Paul would not be a fun person to hang out with. I want to say that carefully. You get the feel sometimes that Paul would just want to exasperate you with teaching incessantly. And yet, here is Paul saying, I want to come to you that I might enjoy fellowship with you. And then he says again that I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, massive implications for this. When we think about our church and we think about our role in the church, if we think, well, I go on Sunday morning and that's it, or I go Sunday morning and evening and that's it, and there's no living life together and there's no desire to to share in the joys of gospel living together, and there's no desire to encourage others who come in, and if there's no desire to be together building each other up, then we are failing miserably to be the kind of church that Christ wants his church to be. Here was a church Paul didn't plant, people he had never met, but he knew that if he went to them, he would be encouraged by them, he would enjoy his time with them, he would be refreshed by them, and he would be sent off spiritually invigorated. You know, I think about um, the conversation that we often have in our day about churches. I read an interesting article this week by Tom Rainier where he had talked about, is your church a, a welcoming and friendly church? And uh, Rainier goes on to say that every church he's ever been to thinks they're a welcoming church. He said, without fail, 700 churches. Do you think you're a friendly church? Oh yeah, we're a friendly church. <laughs> and he goes down the list and he lists seven or eight points that says, you may not be as friendly a church as you think that you are. You may not be as welcoming a church as you think that you are. You may not be a church that is seeking to spiritually enrich and edify. You know, it's fascinating to me that in a support letter in which Paul is trying to get provision for his mission, Paul speaks very little of himself in this. He speaks a lot about other churches He speaks a lot about the needs and the ways that churches help each other. You actually learn more in this portion of scripture about the church and about churches than you do about Paul. I think that's remarkable. You know, there is, I think I said this to you recently, there is probably no more pressing need. There's probably no more pressing need in our day than to assess what kind of church are we going to be. Not what kind of minister are we going to have, but what kind of church are we going to be. Are we going to pour our lives out in service? You know, not everybody is called to do what Paul did. Let me say that emphatically this morning. Uh, Most of you will never be called to plant a church. Most of you will never be called to go to a place where the gospel's never been preached, 
to preach the name of Christ to people who have never heard Christ. But all of us are called to be a supporting people, a sending people, an edifying people, a refreshing people, a welcoming people, a prayerfully supporting people. I was thinking this morning that the natural application for us at New Covenant, are we committed to not only sending and praying for, but pouring ourselves out. And notice the language that Paul uses in verse 30, striving, in the Greek it's agonizing, with Doris and Ron Weeks. Are we willing to agonize with them while they are in a very difficult part of this world, pouring themselves out for the gospel? Are we willing to agonize in prayer? Are we willing to agonize in giving? Are we willing to agonize in, in gaining support for them? That's, that's exactly what Paul's teaching in this passage. I want to say this this morning because I think that we often fall into the trap of um, sort of false dichotomies. I've already said one. We're word-centered, we're gospel-centered, we don't worry about word mercy ministry. That's, that's a completely false dichotomy. Um, we're we're theology-driven, and, and we want to make sure that we have all of our doctrine right, but we're not worried about planting churches and supporting missions and being outward-focused and helping other churches. That's a completely false dichotomy. We don't, we don't become this inward church that is just a preaching post, but that a church that is alive and that is connected and that is caring and that is supporting and that is sending. You know, we, we need to be praying as a church that God would give us new families so that in the next couple years we can plant a church in Hinesville. That should be on the horizon. We should care about the 65,000 people just to the west of us that don't have solid, expository, preaching, gospel-centered, Christ-saturated churches. We should, be, we should be a church that is eager to strive together with the missionaries we support, the Weeks and the Cuneos. We should be a church that is eager to see Christ spreading his kingdom out from here. And that means, and I want to say this as we close, because the only way that any of us ever get there is that we have our own hearts gripped by the gospel. The only way we get here, I am not interested in guilting you into anything. I mean that. I have zero desire to try to motivate any of you through guilt. The only way we get the vision that Paul had and that he set out for the church in Rome and that he set out from the church in Macedonia to Jerusalem and that he had to take the gospel to Spain is that our hearts are gripped by what Jesus did at the cross. Our hearts are gripped by what Jesus did for us at the cross. No amount of trying to guilt yourself into growth in grace will ever cause you to grow in grace. I read a great quote I want to read to you this morning from Jack Miller. Jack Miller said, never again look at your sins apart from Christ. You can't handle them. You'll either suppress them and deny that they're there, or you'll see how bad they are. They will overwhelm you. It's a great quote, because what Miller is saying coincides with this. How do I get 
to where the Apostle Paul was and how do we as a congregation get to what he wanted of the church and what Jesus wants of the church. It's when we see our own sin in light of who Christ is and what he's done and we don't suppress it and act like it's not there and we don't look at our sinfulness and our depravity and our fallenness without looking at the cross. But when we go back to the cross, we go forward in growth and grace. When we go back to the cross, our desire is for others to know Jesus. It's for others to know the same grace we've known. What would make the church in Rome, and I'll close with this, what would make the church in Rome receive a a small, despised, uneloquent man like Paul, what would make them so eager to receive him and welcome him? Because they were all bound together in Christ. They were all bound together in the same gospel. It's one of the most remarkable things about the Bible. I often hear people talk about why they want to go to church because they like a certain atmosphere in the church. Um, They like the people in the church. It's good to like people in the church. But more often than not, I think people choose churches where they find social avenues of people like them one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it takes people that have nothing in common, ethnically, socioeconomically. The only thing they have in common is the sin from which Jesus redeemed them. They have the Savior in common. And that's why Paul could write everything that he wrote. It all goes back to the union that we have with Christ. Um, Paul is going to say this in chapter 16. We'll see this next week where, and, and you may read those farewell sections of letters and think they're kind of like the genealogies in the Bible and feel like you're reading a telephone book. But, but Paul will actually say about every single individual in chapter 16, in Christ, in Christ. Greet Junius who is in Christ. What Paul realizes is that he has a union with all other believers throughout the whole world because of his union with Jesus. And I want to say this this morning. Christianity is the only thing in the world that does that. It's the only thing in the world that unites people that have nothing in common, absolutely nothing, and makes them care for each other the way that we see the churches caring for each other and the apostle interacting. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace that we might see our need anew for the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make us to feel our need for him, that you would make us to see the bleeding sacrifice and all that he is for us. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see that he was wounded for our transgressions and for the sins of all your people throughout the world. We thank you for your church We thank you for your church all over this world in various countries. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us hearts that are burdened to agonize together with those who are engaged in foreign missions and in church planning. We pray that you would invigorate us and that you would revive us as a congregation and you would make us zealous to see the gospel take root in places where there is no faithful gospel witness. We pray, our God, that you would move our hearts, that we would long to be merciful as the Apostle Paul was, and that, Lord Jesus, you would make us a church that is committed to word and deed. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.